Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be discussing the narrative of Joseph in the context of the book of Genesis. Just a reminder to check out the links in the show notes. There you can find a link to our YouTube channel, where we post weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and here is James Jordan discussing the life of Joseph in the context of Genesis. Just a few preliminaries here in terms of reminding us where we are in Genesis. I've got down here number one, chiastically matches Genesis 2, 4 to 4, 26. Of course, you'd have to look back in your notes to about page 3 or 4 to see that. And so, why don't I remind us of what I'm talking about here? Because we're getting into the Joseph narrative and talking about themes of it. Those themes are going to relate to the parts of Genesis that match this one. Genesis gives us creation in seven days. And then, after God makes the world in seven days... We have seven sections in Genesis that roughly correspond to these and have the same kind of matches. Remember that the creation of light on the first day matches the Sabbath. The creation of a firmament between heaven and earth matches the creation of man who was between heaven and earth on the sixth day. On the third day we have land and sea and plants on the land. And on the fifth day we have creatures of land and sea. Birds multiply on the land fish are in the sea, and on the fourth day we have the lights in the firmament, which really matches back to one and seven, light, luminaries, and the day of the Lord, the Sabbath day. The first section in Genesis is basically chapters two to four, which is the garden and fall. The second section of Genesis is the Sethites, which is chapters five to six A, These are the people that God put over the earth. Let me remind you of how that works. Here we have the creation of man as a light, the light of the world, over the world, and then his fall. Then at the end of chapter 4, it says that after Seth gave birth to Enosh, men began to call on the name of the Lord. The Sethites are set up then as a firmament between heaven and earth, between God and and the rest of humanity. This is the first priestly people, the first priestly line. And as a firmament between God and the rest of humanity, which is the Cainites, these Sethites live lifespans that correspond to astral cycles. I think I've mentioned that before when we looked at it when we first started out, but 777 years is the synodical period of the planet Saturn. 365 years, of course, is the days in a year. The other lifespans, several of them, correspond to stars. And so this is a firmament people, but then they fall. They fall by getting involved with the daughters of men. So we come to the third day, which is the flood narrative. The flood narrative takes apart land and sea and then puts them back together again. The fourth day is another genealogy 
this is of the Shemites. This is the flood. This is the Shemites and their fall at Babel. So we have another group of people who were set up as rulers after Noah, and Noah is made something of a king, remember. He's told from now on you put murderers to death. And then his sons rebel against him, which is very much like this fall here. Noah makes a garden. His son Ham sins in the garden. Noah comes back and passes judgment in his garden. So Noah is doing things like God did in the beginning. Then we have a genealogy of Sethites and their fall, and we have a genealogy of Shemites and their fall at the Tower of Babel, which is very much like that section. And then we have the last three narratives. We have the Abraham narrative, and the Jacob narrative, and the Joseph narrative. And so we mentioned Jacob and Esau are the types of what a human being is. The things that are said about Esau summarize all the sins that have been done in Genesis up to that point. He commits polygamy. He commits brother murder. He's involved with forbidden food because the food that he's involved in is the wrong food. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 4 the names of Lamech's wives? Remember the poem that Lamech says? The first poem in the Bible. we got the first musician, Jubal, the first agriculturalist, Jabal, the first metallurgist, Tubal-Cain, and the first poet who's Lamech. And he says, Ada and Zillah, you wives of Lamech. Remember? One of Esau's wives is named Ada. Esau is a hunter like Nimrod. So Esau is the perfect eschatological wicked man at this point in history. And Jacob, of course, is the perfect man. And we spend a lot of time on that. Now we come to Joseph and we come to Sabbath themes. Joseph is the one who's going to bring rest. And so we need to match Joseph all the way back to this first story here, the expulsion from the Garden of Eden and the murder of Abel by Cain and Cain going out and building a city. He builds the first city. The first of everything comes up in Genesis 4. The wicked build the first ones. Now, how does this match? Well, we have removal from the Garden of Eden here, and we have a restoration to the Garden of Eden here in the story of Joseph. And that's made plain if we read Genesis very carefully and collect information as we go. Genesis 13.10, which is seminal verse for understanding Genesis. And I know you've heard it before. Lot chose for himself all the circle of the Jordan. Excuse me, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the circle of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we're told what the circle, this area was like. It was like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So, like the garden of Eden, that's what garden of Yahweh has to be referring to, is the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and the land of Egypt. To go down into Egypt is like going down into the Garden of Eden. Now, there's, there's plain geographical reasons why that's true, is, aren't there? I mean, what is Egypt like? It's watered by a river, not by rain. And that's what the Land of Eden was like and what the Garden of Eden was like. And so there are those kinds of similarities. But in terms of the structure of Genesis, we're kicked out here, we go back in here. Now, that's not the only thing that's happening when we go to Egypt. But 
What does it say when Adam is kicked out of the garden? What did God say to him about the land he was going to go to? Cursed is the ground with reference to you. Thorns and thistles will it bear. With great labor and sweat will you husband this land. That's what the land outside the Garden of Eden is like. Well, remember when Abraham comes into the promised land, someday will be like the land of Eden. The book of Ezekiel says the promised land has become like the land of Eden. But it's not like the land of Eden when Abraham comes into it because of what's the first thing that happens? Big famine. And then he comes back in and the land isn't very productive. There's not enough room for him and Lot, so they have to separate. It's not a very productive land. We're definitely outside of Eden. And then we just came on down. We saw when we started these studies, we looked at Isaac. Why did Isaac have to go to Gerar? Because there was a famine in the land. The land isn't cooperating. And the land isn't cooperating with Jacob. Soon there's going to be another famine in the land. The land is not going to be cooperating. But where is everything going good? Down in Egypt. When there are famines up in the land of promise, there are not famines in Egypt. What did Abraham do when there was a famine in the land? Went down to Egypt. When there was another difficulty in the land, he went to Gerar, which were Philistines, and Philistines are what? Egyptians. And Gerar, as we had a map on here, is down toward Egypt. Similarly with Isaac, when there's a famine, moves into Egyptian territory. Now, what is climactic here in Genesis is this time there's a disaster on Egypt as well. There are going to be seven years of dearth in Egypt. But even during those seven years of dearth, there's still no famine in Egypt because they laid up bread. So in Egypt, you see, in a lot of ways, at this point, you have to forget all the other stuff about Egypt that comes up later on in Exodus because we haven't gotten there yet. In Genesis, coming down into Egypt is coming back into a garden situation and getting out of a place, a cursed land where there are thorns and thistles and bad stuff has happened. So that's one thing. And then there are going to be a bunch of other Edenic things like clothing. I'll probably get to this today, but... God made Adam and Eve tunics of skin. That's the word that's used for Joseph's tunic that his father makes him. A skillfully woven tunic, which the King James called a robe of many colors. A skillfully woven tunic. It's the only other time in Genesis tunic is used. And tunic is very important. It's one of the priestly garments. It's what the daughters of the kings wear. It has to do with royalty and priesthood. And it sees matched. We get crummy, stinky garments made of skin. Yesterday, I watched the movie The 13th Warrior, which is based on Michael Crichton's book, Eaters of the Dead, which is a retelling of Beowulf. And in Crichton's reworking of Beowulf, Grendel is a tribe, and these people all dress in bear skins all the time. They stink horrible because they've just got rotting bear skins on them. And they come sweeping in and attacking these Norsemen, and the Norsemen have to fight back against them. And all the elements of the Beowulf story are there, but recast in Michael Crichton's version of it. Well, I was thinking of that, people dressed in skins. Not real delightful. It's enough to get you by, but it's not what you want to wear. Come down here and we have a glorious garment. 
a skillfully woven tunic. It's probably not a robe of many colors, but it's still an element of glory and picks up this theme. So that's another thing. Then a second aspect of this match between the two passages, of course, is the brother murder theme. Because the brother murder theme is important in the Jacob and Esau story, but it just continues right into Joseph. And where Cain murdered Abel, the brothers want to murder Joseph. And they intend to do so. And Reuben talks them out of it. And then when Reuben's away, Judah talks them out of it. And Judah talks them into just selling him into slavery. But of course, being thrown into a pit, being thrown into prison, being sold into slavery, those are all kinds of death. And so there is brother murder going on here. And that's resolved. Whereas Jacob is not able to really save Esau. They can get along together, but at a distance, there's no full reconciliation here. There's just, okay, you do your thing over in Seir, and I'll do my thing over here in Hebron. There's no full reconciliation between Cain and Abel. It's just, you be over there, and I'll be over here. There is a reconciliation here. The gospel goes to the Gentiles here with Joseph, and the middle wall of partition which exists between Jacob and Esau is gone with Joseph, or so to speak. The Egyptians are converted. In fact, the Egyptians are converted first. The gospel goes to them, the Egyptians convert, and then the brothers are converted back to the Lord. And that's picked up many times later on in the Bible, including the book of Romans, which tells us the gospel goes to the Gentiles. When they convert, only after that will the brothers become jealous and come back in. We'll see that as we proceed. And then there is the theme of this city. Cain builds the first city. Enoch, that city of Enoch, moves down through history, but Egypt is part of that. Egypt is one of the great empires, one of the great cities. There's no particular city. Egypt is not associated with a particular city the way some of the other cultures are. I mean, we might, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't continually talk about the capital of Egypt as this or that place. But it's still partly connected with this theme here. And here, the bad city of the Canaanites is finally conquered by the gospel. The problem that's set up here and continues on down, the wicked are wiped out in the flood, and then they try again at Babel, and they're just pushed down. And then with Jacob and Esau, they're just separated. The wicked will be over here. But here, finally, the wicked are actually conquered by the gospel. And Joseph's death is what makes this possible. Joseph dies to things, and God works in the hearts of the Egyptians, and they convert. And so, at the end of the book, the Egyptians are this converted nation. You can intermarry with them. Joseph does. When Jacob dies, all the Egyptians come out and mourn for Jacob. Throughout the narrative, everything points to the reconciliation here that's taken place. So, the estrangements that start out in this first historical narrative in Genesis after the creation, once we get to human beings, the first historical narrative concerning human beings, the estrangements that are set up there, are overcome here. And they're not perfectly overcome, because we know from Genesis 10 that there are many more nations besides Egypt. And so anybody reading Genesis can know that this is not a full and final reconciliation of these problems, but it's a definitive one. And it tells us a whole lot. And because what Joseph does brings about these essential reconciliations, 
That's why he is such a prominent type of Christ. There is nobody who's ever written on the Joseph narrative, no Christian who's ever written on the Joseph narrative who hasn't started listing out all the ways in which Joseph is a type of Jesus. Joseph takes care of bread and wine. Jesus gives us bread and wine. Joseph saves the Gentiles and he saves his brothers and that's what Jesus does. Gospel goes first to the Gentiles and then the Jews will convert after all. On and on and on and on and on because Joseph is essentially in so many important and significant ways healing the situation that started here at the beginning. So that's one thing to bear in mind as we begin the Joseph narrative. And then... There's a second structural aspect of this in Genesis that's also worthy of consideration. And that is that Genesis gives us the fall of man and then two extensions of the fall of man, so we really get three falls. And we've discussed this before, but let's remind ourselves of it. First of all, well, let's remind ourselves of the world. This is how you get into this. God plants a garden inside the land of Eden, which is inside the world. And in the center of the garden, very center of the world, are these two trees. Now Adam sins in the garden by stealing from God. He pulls the fruit off a tree. He has his wife do it. It doesn't matter. He's standing there. Now I, Brian, tooth for tooth, if you pull a fruit off of God's tree, then what do you have to do? You've got to hang another fruit back up there. If you steal a fruit off my tree, you got to put a fruit back. That's why so much classical hymnody compares with tearing off of this fruit with the crucifixion. That's why Jesus is nailed on a tree. He's replacing the fruit that was stolen. Among about a million other things, Jesus' death accomplishes all kinds of things, but one dimension of it is, of course, it makes restitution for the stealing of this fruit off of this tree. Well, at any rate, that's kind of to the side of today's lesson. But we steal from God by impatience. Impatience is the fundamental sin here. He didn't wait on the Lord. Remember, God had said to Adam, eventually you'll get to eat of it. So he's impatient. And we match that to the Abraham narrative. Abraham is about patience, waiting. He just waits. Now, they're cast out of the land of Eden into another land, which I call the forecourt land. It's right near there, so you can still come up to the gate of the garden and offer sacrifices. So we have a land, and we have a land theme. And this is in the sanctuary, and it's the first fall. The fall in the land by Cain is murder. It's not stealing. It's brother murder. And the answer to that is in the Jacob narrative. Jacob manages not to be murdered by Esau. Esau is much worse than Cain. These are new people. They don't have any backlog of historical training. Cain is just a guy who loses his temper and kills his brother. Remember that nobody's ever died before. Okay. <laughs> so Cain hits his brother and then says, Okay, that'll teach you a lesson. And he looks down and says, That'll teach you a lesson, Abel. And Abel isn't moving. And Abel isn't breathing. This has never happened before. Cain didn't know that if he... I mean, we don't know. but And they had killed animals, obviously. But still, you can't impute 
necessarily to Cain's deed as much knowledge about what it means to murder a human being because no human being had ever died before. He'd never seen a dead human being before. And Genesis 2 makes it plain that human beings are not animals. God brought all these animals to Adam and Adam named them and they weren't suitable helpers. So I don't know what happened when Cain struck Abel. But don't impute back to that event what it would mean if you killed somebody today because you know that human beings can be killed. Cain may not have known that it was possible to kill a human being the same way you killed now. So God doesn't put him to death, but now we get down here to Esau. When Esau says, I'm going to kill, he knows what that means. And he's summing up all these other sins. It's a much more dangerous situation, and Jacob manages not to get murdered, and some degree of reconciliation takes place. Not reconciliation, but at least you do your thing and I do my thing. On the Jacob narrative, focuses in on that brother-brother business. Laban is another brother-brother person he has to contest with, and we looked at all that. Well, finally, there's the situation in the world, and the Sethites are ministering in the world, and their sin is intermarriage, and that is the sin that's going to come into major focus in the Joseph narrative. Abraham has to just be patient and wait. Jacob has to be patient and wrestle as well. Joseph has to be patient and die. He has to die in a very significant way. He has to deliberately give up the things that he has. That's tougher. Each one of these is something of an extension beyond what the preceding generation had to face. But intermarriage becomes a major theme here. Of course, we've got brother murder at the beginning of it, but then as soon as the narrative starts going, we get... Judah intermarries with the Canaanites. Goes off. Immediately after they sold Joseph, it says, and this is important, it's in context. Kill the brother, and then the first thing you do is you go off and marry a pagan. So immediately we move into this third area. Judah goes down and marries a pagan, and then he has these sons, and these sons are wicked. They are like the sons of God. Men are married with the daughters of men, and the mighty men were born to them. Exactly what that means is always fruit for speculation, but violent men were born to him. His sons are bad, and he marries them off to another Canaanite who is converted. Aha, conversion of the Gentiles is coming in here. Then we go down to Egypt with Joseph, and again, we get this temptation with a foreign woman. Joseph refuses. Then after the Egyptians convert, he marries one of them. It was okay to marry the daughters of men. If they become believers, see. We want to marry a daughter of a man, well, it's okay if they convert. But if they don't convert, you can't marry them. Well, that becomes a major theme here. Now, in a sense then, what's happening here is, if you look back at number one, the Joseph narrative chiastically is matched with the fall in the garden and being kicked out of the garden and the brother-brother murder in Cain and Abel and the first city, which is like Egypt. But it's also thematically matched with the next fall of man, which is the fall in intermarriage. So the Joseph narrative coming at the end collects all three of these. Thematically, it pulls all of this together. Once again, the literary structure of the book and the themes of the book are such that here at this end of the story, we're collecting everything and providing some kind of a resolution for it. So it's not just 
the Joseph story is not just about intermarriage. It's also going to collect up these themes of exile from Eden. We'll get back into a new Eden at the end of the book. And it's also going to collect up the theme of brother murder. And that's going to be resolved as well. It's going to collect all these things up. You can contrast that a little bit with the book of Judges. The last three Judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, also follow those three themes. Gideon's sin is that he puts up an effort where people can worship and sets up false worship. He messes up where Abraham doesn't mess up in setting up worship and setting up a bad garden of Eden. And then we go to Jephthah, and Jephthah's got all these conflicts with his brothers. And his brothers drive him out. And then he comes back in and delivers them, and then he has to fight a war against the Ephraimites, which are his brothers. Brother-brother thing comes up in the Jephthah story, and then the last story in Judges is the Samson story, which is all about intermarriage and compromise along those lines. But the Samson story does not collect everything up, because Judges has two more stories before the book is ended. But the themes are there. But the Joseph narrative coming at the end of Genesis collects everything. And finally, and we'll stop, as I mentioned when we started out, Genesis has these seven sections after the creation of the world, and this is corresponding to the seventh day. And so with Joseph, we arrive at Sabbath rest, and Sabbath rest has to do with enthronement. Now that's only implied in Genesis 1, where it says God rested, it's actually in Genesis 2. Someday somebody's going to have to go through and fix these chapters. But these chapter divisions are only about five or 600 years old. When the printing press was invented, that's when chapters were invented. They didn't exist before then. And it was done for the printers. Now here we are, these bad chapter divisions... The seventh day God completed his work and he rested on the seventh day and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. It's not apparent that there's enthronement there, but there is everywhere else. Whenever you get to Sabbath rest, you get to enthronement. And after the flood, and Noah means rest, when Noah brings rest at the end of the flood, he's made a king. And this Sabbath theme here means that we are arriving at the first manifestation of, well, one of the first manifestations of godly human kingship. Of course, as I said, Noah shows that, but then Noah's world, the world that Noah sets up, falls apart at the Tower of Babel. So God starts something new with Abraham, and in this new world that starts with Abraham, this is where we start getting to kingship. Remember, we saw God said to Jacob right at the end, kings will come from you. And then Benjamin is born. Benjamin is the first king. Joseph is going to honor Benjamin with a five-fold portion. Five is the number of power. And so to honor Benjamin is to honor the king. But Benjamin is not going to be the last king. Judah is going to be the last king. Judah is prophesied in this narrative to be the future king. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Why? Because Judah offers to die for Benjamin. And it's one thing to be a king. It's another thing to be a king who is willing to die. That's a better kind of king. And that's one of the major themes in this story. And we'll be looking at it as we get to it. But getting to the Sabbath rest, everybody getting into this nice land and getting to rest, 
and also the coming of a king. These are going to be important themes, and once again, they're bringing to an end the things that Genesis starts with. God is king. He wants human beings to grow up to be kings. That's what the test in the Garden of Eden was all about. Adam was made a priest, and if he'd been faithful, he'd been made a king. Now we come to somebody who is faithful, Joseph. Joseph is the one person in the Bible about whom absolutely nothing bad is ever said. No criticism can be made of him, besides Jesus, of course. So Joseph does the things Adam was supposed to do and didn't, and brings about here in Genesis this reconciliation of all things. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.